Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Yeah, check out uh, the Free Grace Alliance uh, website, freegracealliance.com. See all the resources there, and these videos will be on there, and many other good messages from past conference. Uh, my website is gracelife.org, and of course, you understand what Free Grace Alliance is. It's an alliance of different organizations, so Grace Life belongs to the Free Grace Alliance. Individuals and organizations can belong to the Free Grace Alliance. Um, and check out the podcast, uh, simplybygrace.org. We've had great success with it. We have over, oh, we have about 24,000 downloads right now. And uh, the last series, the last one that is playing this week is me reading the last in the series of me reading my book Simply by Grace and then interviewing somebody about that topic afterwards. I'm interviewing this week, uh, you'll, you'll hear Greg Steer of Dare to Share Ministries, who works with youth as an evangelist and in training in, in evangelism. And he came from a, a family of street thugs. He tells a little bit about his story in my episode, but also we tell you how to get his book, Unlikely Fighter. And it's just an amazing story that he has. So check that out. You're also probably wondering why I got a fishing book amongst all the theological books. Just because I love to fish, that's why. And then I found out that there's 55 million fishermen in the United States, and I looked around to see if there's any books that shared the gospel with them. Now, I found some books written by Christians, but mostly is written to Christians, kind of in a devotional way. I could not find a book that was targeting people who like to fish with the gospel message. And so, uh, when I found out there were 55 million fishermen in the United States, and some of them could read, I decided to write this book using my stories and weaving into it spiritual truths, kind of getting wetting their appetite until the end when I really share the gospel with them. And I've heard some wonderful stories about people sharing the book, giving it away, even to people that are non-fishermen like the stories, because people just like stories. And, um, and they... Like a wife will buy it get to give it to her fisherman husband, but she reads it instead. She says, I really like your book. I've heard that so many times. And I've heard about people, people getting saved from it and so forth. So check it out. Today we're going to talk about the gift and the prize. We're going to be in John chapter 4. It's very convenient that God has packaged this theme in that chapter for us. And we're going to see a very important distinction in the scripture. And I'm going to move a little bit quickly because... We're encroaching on our lunchtime. We want to look at John chapter 4, 1 through 30. We won't take the time to read it all, of course, but you're familiar with the story of the woman at the well and Jesus and his conversation with her. You have there Jesus um, leaving Jerusalem and heading north to Galilee. And he knew that... um, it says in verse 4, he needed to go through Samaria. Now, you're familiar probably with the geography of how things worked, um, how someone in Jerusalem would go to uh, Galilee up here is they would cross the Jordan River, go up Moab and uh, Transjordan area, and then into Galilee. They did that to avoid Samaria, which was considered unclean territory settled by the Assyrians and intermarried with the Jews. They were considered half-breeds, unclean, dogs, and the Jews didn't want to have anything to do with them, so they would avoid that route. 
That's why it's so interesting in John chapter 4, 4, that it says he needed to go through Samaria. Jesus didn't need to go through Samaria unless he was doing some work of God uh, that his father had sent him to do. And I think that's exactly why he went through Samaria. And there he met a, um, at a well where he stopped to drink. Uh, it tells us, verse 5, 6, and 7, he meets a woman of Samaria who came to draw water and said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Interesting thing about reading the book of John is you'll often see these little commentaries, uh, commentary notes here. He kind of keeps us, he lets us know what's going on in the background and uh, things that are not explicit in the story. So he tells us that the disciples had gone away to get food because they were also hungry. And in the meantime, Jesus is left alone and with this woman and says, give me a drink. And the woman, it says in verse 9, says, how is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink? Uh, a Samaritan woman. Of course, she understood the social and religious prejudices that were involved here, and that's why she is so surprised. And, and then it, it sounds like John is explaining again for us the background so we can understand for the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. And Jesus answered her and said to her, if you had known the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So Jesus simply says to her, if you knew who it was that you're asking and just simply asked for a drink, he or I would have given you living water. By a simple request. Living water would be yours. Well, living water, maybe she didn't understand exactly what that was, but she understood that it was good and said, hey, you don't have anything to draw water with. And, uh, and then he, she tries to get in an argument about the well and who owns the well and so forth, but Jesus kind of doesn't even deal with that. But he says to her again in verse uh, 13, whoever drinks of the water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. So the issue is thirst. Have you ever been thirsty? I mean, really thirsty. Now, I not only when you're fishing, you're around water. I'm not often thirsty then, but I like to hunt too. And sometimes I get in situations where I don't pack enough water and I get very thirsty. It's happened several times in uh, my hunting when I've done stupid things. One time I went way back in the back country of Texas, and, and hunting season opens kind of early in the archery season, where, when it's usually very hot. And uh, I had uh, gone way, way back into the woods, and then I realized, you know what? I'm not going to make it through the day. I'm too thirsty. I'm dehydrated. Uh, after walking and climbing and getting up in a tree and everything, I said, I'm just going to have to get down and get, get some water and finish out the evening later. So I climbed down, I got in my car, and I started to drive out. It would be about an hour drive before I could find any civilization and a drink. I started to drive out, and as I drove through this cut, the road cut between a couple little hills, rises, I saw some water trickling out of the side of the hill. So I, I stopped the car. And I mean, Texas is dry, you know, even when you, you cross a, uh, a, a creek in Texas, it says, you know, uh, such and such creek. And you look down, there's no water there. That means when it rains, there's a creek. 
but usually there's nothing there. So it's amazing just to see water coming out of the hillside. So I stopped, and I went up there, and I just started drinking from it because feeling, you know, I didn't know if there was a cow up top or where the water was coming from. I didn't really care. It tasted good. I got, I was satisfied. I got my car and I went back hunting again. But I mean, really, really thirsty where you, you can tell you're in danger. This woman was very, very thirsty, but I don't think she knew what she was thirsting for. And here Jesus promises her living water. She needed living water. Evidently, she was not living. And the fact that she uh, would have to come and draw water every day as a daily chore in that culture, and even in cultures today, was a burdensome thing. Now, he says to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman says, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you've said, well, you have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one that you're with is not your husband. You've spoken truly. So here's a woman now. I'm assuming she's going to be an older woman because she's gone through five guys and now she's on her number six, right? Probably not a young woman. She's probably an older woman. Usually when people draw water, they send the children or young people or young, young ladies. It's a ladies' chore in many countries I go to. And then they carry the water on their head, which is a very heavy load at eight pounds a gallon. And, you know, maybe carrying five gallons of water. You're carrying 40 pounds uh, on your head. And this is a daily chore for many people all over the world, even today. So back then, you can imagine an elderly woman, maybe not elderly, but older woman, who all her life has gone to fetch water and carry it on her head, and somebody says, you know what, I've got living water, and you'll never thirst again. Well, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? That's a pretty good promise. And so it certainly gets her curiosity up. And... Um, and he talks about a free gift that she could have if only she were to ask him for it. Simply ask him for it. What I see here in the story is that she's in a perfect position to receive God's free gift. The gift is given to those who realize their need. She realized she had a need for living water. Uh, she wanted the water, so there was a desire there or some kind of living water, though she may not have, not have understood everything about it. And she needed to understand who Jesus was, which kind of evolves uh, in the conversation. He goes from, uh, from being a prophet to finally rec being recognized as the Messiah. And all she needs to do is simply ask. What Jesus promised to her was water that would spring up under its, under its own power into everlasting life. You see, what she would have to do every year, every day, is go to the well and lower probably a bucket that was there on a rope and then haul up these heavy loads of water and fill up her main bucket and do it repeatedly. The water had no power or force of its own to help her. She had to use her own strength to do that. And Jesus says, you know what? I can give you water that it's going to be its own force. It's going, to be, it's going to be like a geyser inside of you. You're not going to have to haul water to be satisfied with this. That would be an appealing thought to an older woman who's hauled water all of her life. She was required to do nothing except to believe, and I think that comes in the word ask. If you, if you believe that he's making a true promise, and he says, ask me, then you would ask, showing that you believe. 
In fact, we'll find that there are a number of analogies for believe in the book of John. The only condition that Jesus says is to believe. Even when she admits that she has had five husbands and is living with another man, Jesus does not bring that issue and throw it in her face and say, well, you got to stop living with the guy or you can't be saved. He doesn't say that. In fact, as we've noted earlier, the word repent does not occur in the book of John. What we do find is a number of analogies in there, like some of these that I've listed, that ask, we've just said, look, John chapter 3, uh, verse 15, uh, referring to the Numbers 21 story when they crawled to see the bronze serpent, and whoever looked on the serpent was healed. And so, even so, those who look on Jesus who was lifted up will believe and have eternal life. So looking is equated with believing. Drinking is used here in this chapter, but also in John chapter 6 about drinking the blood of Christ, which, of course, is not the literal blood of Christ. It's symbolic of appropriating the benefits of his death. And eating his flesh, also from John chapter 6, is not talking about eating a, a cracker right, uh, at the or Eucharist. It's talking about appropriating the benefits of, again, his death. Whoever, and it, it's defined in chapter 6, eating and drinking as believing, by the way, if you look at um, 651 and 54. Coming to Christ in the same chapter, whoever comes to me, I will no way cast out. So coming to Christ is a common term to refer to those who come to believe in him. Follow after me is a different term. Coming to me for salvation is usually the, is, is the language of evangelism or salvation. And whoever hears my voice. And the idea is not just the physical aspect of hearing, of course, uh, but it means uh, hearing, agreeing, appropriating what you hear. Like when you say, um, and Dooley's barbecue is, is really good, I say, I hear you. It means I agree with you. I know what you're saying, and I agree with you. Whoever hears Jesus and agrees with him has everlasting life. And then he uses another analogy in John chapter 10 about entering using the sheepfold as an analogy, whoever enters is safe and secure. Now look at these analogies in the Gospel of John that he has given to us. A book that uses the word believe, 98, someone said 99 times, always as a verb, never as a noun, and never using the word repent, and almost half of, the, almost half of those nine times, it's a condition of salvation. Then, and not only that, he throws in all these analogies to emphasize the fact that believing is not hard, difficult, complicated, or a work. Look, at, is, it, is it work to, to ask? Is it work to look? Couldn't be simpler. Is it work to eat and drink? We're going to go do that after a while. It's work to listen to somebody preach, but it's not work, <laughs> it's not work to go out and, uh, and get a sandwich and a drink. That's, that's the break from work. About the lunch break to come, to hear, to enter, all of these show us that faith is a very simple thing, nothing complicated. So the gift has no other conditions attached to it, not baptism. He doesn't mention that to the woman, not turning from her sin, not making a commitment to him, not obeying him and submitting to him as master of all of her life. None of that is brought up to her. That reminds us, of course, of Ephesians 2.8, which says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God and not of works, lest anyone should boast. 
This says we are saved by grace, through faith, and not by works. That not of yourselves refers to salvation by grace. It's not saying that faith is a gift of God. That grammatically does not work. Without getting into all the details, you can take my word for it. Look up Greek, a good Greek commentary on this passage. It'll tell you that that cannot refer to faith. It refers to the idea of being saved by grace through faith. So grace is a free gift, undeserved favor of God, something we don't deserve, but God, uh, God gives to us through faith, which is being persuaded that something is true, because if it's a gift, that's all we can do is, is just receive it as a gift by being persuaded. There's nothing that we bring to the equation or bring in exchange, and not of works. Couldn't be simpler um, to emphasize Grace through faith is to say it's not by works. No human merit is involved. <clears throat> you know that verse very well. So evidently, we know that this woman comes to believe in Jesus Christ because what she does is she goes and shares this message with the villagers of and the Samaritans. And um, after she... Uh, talks about the Messiah coming, and he says, I who speak to you am he. Evidently, she is convinced and goes and talks to the villagers. Now, if you go to look at, look at verse 27, it says, uh, at this point, the disciples came. So after this conversation, now the disciples come back. They've got their Chick-fil-A bags, and uh, they're going, getting ready to eat. And they're marveling that he talked to this woman. Socially unacceptable for a man and woman to be alone, to be talking like that, for a Jew to be talking to a Samaritan. Uh, you see all the boundaries Jesus crossed to reach these undesirable people? He crossed geographical boundaries, religious boundaries, social boundaries, um, sexual boundaries. But Jesus needed to go through Samaria because he wanted to reach the Samaritan people because God loved them also. And so... Uh, the woman left the water pot, it says in verse 28, and she and, uh, said to the men, the men of the city, come see a man who told me all things I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Interesting to what she does. I think she's a very shrewd woman because if she had just gone and said, hey, I've met the Christ, the men would say, get out of here, you're nuts. Instead, because a woman's testimony is not considered credible in a patriarchal society like that. Instead, she's very shrewd, and she just raises a question because men love a challenge. So she kind of challenges them, and she says, this guy told me everything I knew. Could this be the Christ? What do you guys think? Very, very shrewd. So they go check it out, and they, they go, and they meet Jesus and find him and, and go to him, and um, we find out that the whole city believes. She has found the gift of God the living water, which keeps on giving all the way to the end of the Bible, Revelation twenty two seventeen, and the spirit and the bride say, come, let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. That invitation is still open today to anyone who thirsts for something more that can't be satisfied with the things of this world and the broken relationships of this world. So now we talk about the prize. And the conversation changes to the disciples. Look at verse 31. In the meantime, the disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. 
Eat your sandwich. Your chicken's growing cold. And Jesus says to them, I have food to eat, which you do not know. And the disciple said to somebody, did somebody bring him a pizza hut? What's going on? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So Jesus is talking to his disciples differently. He talked to the woman about water. He talks to his disciples about food. He says, do not... Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they're already white to harvest. So Jesus has food, not water, but food for his disciples. It's for those who have believed already. They are his disciples. It involves doing the will of God because he says, I have food, which is to do the will of God. And it involves work. I'm doing my father's work. That's a different conversation, isn't it? And he says, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. They're white to harvest. That reminds me, whenever I read that, it reminds me of this scene, this picture I took in Burundi and East Africa when we were way up in the hills ministering to a tribe that was just, the, we call it the 1% tribe, the Batwa people. Um, they're abused in the country because they're only 1%. They don't get medical care. They don't get free education. Um, and they don't have churches. So we helped them build a church, and, and they're so excited that they chopped a path for our vehicles to get through. Uh, we put the church up, and this people just kind of streamed out of the hills of the church. And I can't help but think of that verse, look at the fields, they're white unto harvest. I think in Jesus' day, what he was probably doing was talking to his disciples, and then in the background, there were I, I'm imagining, using my imagine, biblical imagination, that there's the fields of white wheat ready to harvest. But, Remember, the people from Samaria were all coming to check them out, too. So here comes a stream of people right behind the harvest of wheat. And Jesus, when he says, lift up your eyes, look at the fields that are white to harvest, the people saw the wheat, but they also saw the people all coming. Spiritually curious and spiritually hungry and spiritually thirsty. And, he was trying to, and he's trying to tell them there's a lot of work to do. And he challenges them in the task. Verse 35 um, as he says, lift up your eyes, they're already white to harvest, verse 36. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps, and I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Jesus is saying, hey, there's some work to do, and... The one who works will receive wages and fruit for eternal life. I think that refers to the people who will come to know the Lord through their work, like Jesus is doing his work, the Father's will, and people are coming to know Christ. So Jesus' challenge involves sharing the gospel with people. It involves earning a reward. It involves eternal life that can be continually enjoyed because that's what eternal life, and it's a collaborative effort. He talks about those who went before and now you, you are privileged to be able to reap the benefits of their hard work. Quite a different message to the disciples from what he said to the woman. And it reminds us of Ephesians 2.10. For we are created, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Talking about Christians to Christians, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
Okay, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is one message. Ephesians 2, 10 is another message. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is to unsafe people. Ephesians 2, 10 is to save people. Good works is God's purpose for believers. But good works were never mentioned to the woman who was an unbeliever. And that's God's intention. They are not guaranteed. He created us for good works that we should walk in them, indicating that that would be our, should be our purpose. But he's not saying or guaranteeing that we will. Some questions about works. First of all, you know, a lot of people get in this debate about uh, how many works to have to prove their or will it be Christian good works? Well, it seems to stop and find what a good work is. Well, that has to be done first, in my opinion. What is a good work? Because, uh, you know, uh, a Hindu can, can uh, stop and help a child that's fallen. That's a good work. A Satanist can break for a squirrel crossing the road. That's a good thing, right? I mean, so how do you define a good work? And can good works prove salvation? Well, first of all, what is a good work? It's not a work that seeks to earn salvation. That's, not, that's a dead work, Hebrews would say. It's not a work that seeks to exalt self because we're not doing it for God's good. We're doing it to exalt ourselves. It's not a work done in our own power or in the flesh like Abraham trying to have a son through Hagar. That's not a good work. He did it in his own flesh and power, trying to bypass God. What, it, what I think it is, if I can give you a definition of my own contrivance, it's obedience to God that glorifies him by doing his will in his power. So it's something that we do that we know God wants, but we do it to glorify him, not ourselves, and we do it according to his will and his power. Why can't good works prove salvation? Because they're not always visible. If you're going to judge somebody God by their works, you're going to have to live with them 24-7, right? You don't know if they read the Bible before they go to bed or utter a prayer silently before they eat a meal. How do you know? How can we use works as a judgment unless you live with them 24-7 can get inside their head? Secondly, they're not always measurable. How do you measure how many good works a person has to have? How many times does he have to pray in a day or in a year or in a week? How many times does he have to go to church before he proves that he is a Christian? He used to drink a case of beer a day. Now he only drinks a six-pack a day. How do you know? They're relative and subjective. It's different for everybody. People have different struggles, and so they're going to progress in the Christian growth at different rates. Some people aren't going to progress very much at all. There are such things as carnal Christians, as we've learned. I have a friend, and he was saved as a hippie, long hair, and, and, uh, and he became a pastor, preacher, went to Dallas Seminary and everything. And one of his first sermons, he says he got up there, and he was preaching away, and he used the word damn. Afterwards, some woman comes up to him and says, I don't appreciate you cussing during your sermon. That's a sin. He said, well, ma'am, I'm sorry, but to you it might look like a sin. To me, it's progress. <laughs> It's relative. You're going to judge and say he's not a Christian because he, uses, he slips and uses a word. What, we don't want to know what he used before. The only condition for salvation is faith in Jesus Christ, not our works. 
nothing could be clearer than that. So the gift and the prize, here's what we're trying to say. According to Dr. Charles Ryrie in his book, Balancing the Christian Life, he said this in 1969, very prescient about the debates that we're having today in theology. He said this is one of the most important distinctions you can make in understanding the Bible, the difference between salvation and discipleship, or, be, or getting saved and then growing in the Christian life. There are two different messages. The gift is for unbelievers like this woman. The prize can only be won by believers who are working for the Lord. The gift that he promised the woman was living water, eternal life. The gift or the prize that he promised the disciples was food to do the will of God. So for her, it was eternal life. For them, it was rewards for the work that they would do. For her, it was absolutely free. Just ask. For them, it was work and, and earn it. And, and lay up fruit for eternal life. For her, it meant salvation. For the disciples, it meant another step of discipleship. I call this A truth and B truth, salvation truth and discipleship truth, and that's what my black and white book is all based on, this truth. And so he wanted them to enter into a work to earn rewards, but for the woman, nothing to do but to believe. Is that coming across clear to you? How in this chapter, John where we see these messages of the gift and the prize. Talking to an unbeliever, you're talking about absolutely free gift of eternal life. You're talking about a life of discipleship and commitment and working. The question is, are we ready to help in that work as believers ourselves and to help reap that harvest? Are you working for the Lord today? When Christ returns, will he find us working? Or, as 1 John 2, 28, will we be ashamed at his coming because we are not prepared? John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. And then, again, all the way to the end of the Bible. Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to to his work. Jesus talked about those who had gone on before and worked, and these disciples, he was, he was saying, could enjoy the rewards and the fruits from their labors. He says something similar in 1 Corinthians 3. Uh, I don't think I put the verse up there, but he talks about, he said, I planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the increase. Remember that? 1 Corinthians 3, I think it's 3, verse 6 through 9, something like that. I planted, God watered, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. Sometimes we have the privilege of leading people to the Christ, to Christ, and it's a, it's a great joy, but sometimes we just have to plant the first seed or say the first prayer for that person. We're all working together to do God's will in, in this great harvest field. I was reminded of this recently, exactly two months ago today. I got an email, and the email through my Grace Life website, said, is this the Charlie Bing that I met in 1978, 43 years ago, who tried to sell me cookware with my parents? A little backstory is I was, I was in Bible college. I was a youth pastor, but not getting paid. I had to make some kind of money. Um, I had sold cookware in this college summer program. Uh, we, we target single girls. 
and try to meet with them and their parents and, and sell cookware and other things for their future marriage. So I had met this girl and, and went to her home and sat down with her and her parents and, and showed the product and so forth. And I don't even know if they bought anything. I don't remember. But we hit, hit it off pretty good with the parents. They're real friendly folks. And then I went away and uh, didn't hear from them for a while. I think it was probably a couple months later. I get a phone call, and the phone call is, uh, we understand that you're a youth minister. Our, uh, you remember seeing our daughter, Jenny, when she's tried to commit suicide, and she's in the, the psychiatric ward in the hospital. Would you go visit her? I said, sure, I'll do that. So I went and I visited Jenny, and I sat down and talked to her, and she wasn't looking very receptive. And I started to share the gospel with her. She said, wait a minute, stop, stop right there. I don't, I don't believe anything. I don't even believe there's a God. I looked at her and I said, Jenny, I don't believe you don't believe there's a God. And I kept going. And I shared the gospel with her, and I came back a couple more times and shared the gospel with her, and she was always rude and putting me off and didn't act like she was listening at all. So I said, I answered the email. I said, yeah, this is me. I remember you. I remember your parents. They were very nice. I remember visiting you in the hospital. She said, well, I want you to know that after you stopped visiting me, I started going to all the chapels in the hospital and kept hearing the message over and over. And I, kept, I picked up the Bible, and I just kept reading it and reading it and reading it. And I came to faith in Christ. And I, I was, my life completely changed. I, I got rid of my depression, and my parents then got saved. And we all started going to church together, and they're still faithful. They died a few years ago, but they were faithful to death. And now my family is our faithful Christians. And I just wanted to let you know. You see, you don't know where you are in this labor field and, and what part of the process you're in. <clears throat> Some of you are praying for people to be saved, and that needs to be done. Some of you are struggling to get that first word or hand that tract out uh, because you know you're going to be rejected. Yeah, you might be, but you never know what's going to happen to that person. 43 years later, or in eternity, you might find out that you have fruit for eternal life. Keep the message to the unsafe people clear. Keep our work and our task clear to share the gospel. That's why we're here and not there right now. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for entrusting the gospel message to us of a free salvation by the free grace of God. And thank you that you could use fallible people like us uh, sinners redeemed like us to reach other people. And I just pray that uh, you would empower uh, this church in their work of evangelism and discipleship to continue to reach out across the world. We thank you for what's being done. If there's anyone here today who has doubts about their salvation, may they see from the story in John chapter 4 that your gift of eternal life and the living water is absolutely free and they will never thirst again. And it's there simply for the asking, simply for the asking, believing that Jesus Christ, who paid for that sin on the cross and rose from the dead, is offering the gift of eternal life. And may it be their gift today. And then direct us into the work, Lord, according to our gifts and callings. We trust it to you. We thank you for this opportunity to be together. We ask your blessing on our lunchtime as we partake in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. 
send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.